You're listening to a podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au where we celebrate talented Australian writers and their books. I would like to introduce today to you a wonderful author, a prolific author, uh, on his 40th book, I believe, and uh, that's a feat in itself for the emerging writers listening. Pay attention because you might learn something from an absolute world expert here. This is Stephen Dando Collins I'm talking about, and I'm holding in my hand a book that... Uh, baby boomers especially would would be very very keen to read this story it's the Australian behind the legendary stories the dam busters the great escape and reach for the sky the book is called the hero maker and it's a biography of Paul Brickhill Stephen welcome hello Suzanne good to be with you Um, the Times London says of you he set a standard in the telling of popular war stories which has never been surpassed. That was actually Paul Brickhill. They were describing him. Oh, that was uh, that was him, yeah. right? <laughs> but I would I would think that uh, your storytelling would be it, it would be just as <laughs> just as applicable to you. Thank you very much. You're very kind. <laughs> Tell me, uh, for those uh, we've got a lot of listeners who are emerging writers. Uh-huh. Can you tell us how you began your writing career? What Uh, was your first book and when did that happen? My first book was in 1986, published by Pan, and it was non-fiction, and it was called uh, 2000 AD, and it was uh, uh, a predictor of what would happen in the year 2000. Oh, and And how accurate was it now that we've passed that? It was amazing, amazing to look back. um, I've always been meaning to sit down and write a a magazine article comparing the... the, uh, uh, the prophecies from people from Philip Adams to top scientists around the world. I've got 45 right. contributors and, and then I'd write my little bit at the end. And um, you know, Philip Adams accurately predicted that we would have 3D t- TV and, and so on. Fabulous. No one forecast the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the, 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 the fall of uh, communism in, in Europe. Um, uh, others thought that we'd have uh, hover cars by now, and you know, it's, it's fascinating. You know, there was Futurists a... are fascinating, aren't they? Absolutely. And I wonder how often they go back and see how just how accurate they were. What was the name of that book? That was called 2000 AD. You know, there was mm. a, a, a leading British scientist in the uh, 1880s uh, who predicted uh, that by the year 1950, the Earth would be three foot deep in horse manure, because at that time, the, ca- the, the car <laughs> was just a novelty. That's or incredible. Just a dream. Um, so the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the problem of existing information always exists for authors as well. You know, yes. Writing science fiction, um, um, that was an area that I tried to write. My, I was a huge fan of H.G. Wells and George Orwell and uh, I've always wanted to write you know, something in, in their area. But uh, uh, maybe one day, maybe one day. <laughs> so after that very first book, um, you were inspired to continue writing, I, I assume. Well, I, I was lucky enough that I was working in advertising as a copywriter, and this was my grounding. A lot of writers, uh, authors, have a background as uh, um, advertising copywriters. Peter Carey's another one. Uh, and, and Bryce uh, Courtney was in yeah, marketing. Of course, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, he ran an advertising agency. Um, uh, or a, a journalists. And the, 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 the or English teachers. Or English teachers, that's right. And in each case, they learn the discipline of writing. 
and uh, I had a creative director who would come to me and he would give me a sentence and tell me to turn it into a book or give me a book and tell me to turn it into a sentence. Uh, and so you learn a great discipline in, in all those three areas. Um, and it's important to learn your craft, isn't it? It is indeed. It's, it's, it's almost an art form. It is, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Paul Brickhill, uh, he uh, was a journalist and that's how he learned his craft. And he was, I would describe him as a craftsman. Uh, and he always went looking for what he called the guts of the story. And he would, I don't think he consciously did it, but he put together a book uh, like building a house. He would get the foundation, which, uh, say the dam busters, which, uh, he discovered that the, 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 the link to the story of this squadron of Lancaster bombers was actually uh, Barnes-Wallace, the scientist who came up with the bouncing bomb and various other amazing bombs which the squadron used. And so this became the link throughout the story. And he had the, you know, the, the, uh, the ability to, to recognise that and to go out and find that, uh, that guts to the story. Oh, it's just such interesting and the great escape you know the way they they dug the tunnel and and what I mean the film was just uh, you had you were on the edge of your seat it's it's amazing that how much how many people um, reflect on on that movie and they can tell you where they were when they first saw it in Britain it's still a staple of, of uh, Christmas uh, uh, TV watching yeah the great escape comes up um, interestingly the movie uh, whilst it was based on Paul Brickhill's uh, book, which was non-fiction, all factual, uh, they took a lot of liberties. Um, and As they often do in movies. <laughs> uh, yes. I, yeah, I've had one of my books turned into a, a, a movie and a couple of others optioned. Uh, one bought outright. and It's been in development for something like 20 years. And you, you learn that, that you know, an author's craft is a solitary uh, thing. Um, making movies as a collaborative effort and all these different people have their input and the author has to learn to, to set back even if the author has written a screenplay uh, uh, they in the end have to, to stand back and uh, let the director and the producer and all these other people have their, their uh, input. Yes, I often wonder if, if you've written a book and they've made a movie and you don't like the movie. <laughs> that must be a terrible thing. I, I know many authors who uh, are, uh, you know, hate the movies that were, were made, made from their books. Um, uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, the, uh, you may remember he and Tim Rice, one of their first uh, musicals was uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Of and that, that was made into a movie. And uh, uh, Lloyd Webber was telling me that he hated the movie. Uh, just, you know, just despised it. I, but, uh, Louise and I, my wife and I, uh, think it's quite a work of art if you, if, if you watch it. it yeah. uh, um, so, so I think, I think the... Um, the I guess the problem for authors is they're so married to their own their exactly. own work. Exactly. Doesn't necessarily mean the movie's bad. It's just that it doesn't reflect accurately what they wrote. That's right. <laughs> and it's it's interesting that d different people will take different things from your book. Uh, and uh, I've had people come to me and, uh, to talk about uh, one or other of my books, and they've picked up on something which, to me, was a you know was a, a subplot or it was an underlying, and um, uh, and. Quite often, what they're saying is, is perfectly true. So, um, the author is not always necessarily the best judge of their own work. No. So, um, you went on to write a, a whole series, and I believe you're an expert on ancient Roman on the, on the le legions of ancient Rome. Yes. Uh, Louise and I had gone to Ireland to see the filming of uh, my first novel, and uh, it had been bought by a British producer. And we arrived to find that. Uh, the sets have been built, the actors are there, it's about to go ahead, and uh, it's been canned. 
because the American financier had just been arrested in Dallas for laundering drug money. Oh my goodness. So, <laughs> so uh, disappointed, we fly to New York to meet my new literary agent. Uh, and uh, so we, takes, we took him for lunch. He takes us for lunch these days. Uh, we took him for lunch. And uh, he had attempted to sell a novel of mine, which he liked very much, and he couldn't. And he's, he gives me all the rejection letters from the, from the publishers, which was interesting. One publisher loved one part and hated the next. The next publisher hated that part and loved that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you could never tell. You can never <laughs> tell. And he said, uh, what else have you got? And uh, Louise is sitting beside me and she elbows me and says, tell him about the Romans. And for 30 years I had been, quite independently, to amuse myself researching the legions of ancient Rome. And I had 10,000 pages of research. And uh, he said, well, send me some. So we get back to Australia, I send him 1,000 pages. He comes back to me and says, OK, tree killer, let's, uh, <laughs> let's get serious here. He said, you're onto something. Um, this has been never done before. Because what I had done was focused on individual Roman legions. So the, uh, a Roman legion is like a regiment in, you know, in a modern-day army. And in fact, modern-day armies, their structure follows that of the Roman legions. And uh, so he said uh, he found a publisher, uh, Wiley, one of the major uh, world's largest uh, non-fiction publishers. They said, we love this. Uh, will you, uh, which legion do you want to start with? And so I started with uh, a legion that Julius Caesar raised called the, the 10th Legion and called the book Caesar's Legion. And that's now in dozens of languages around the world, including Korean. I'd be, I'm Good amazed that they, that they would be uh, interested in it. And then yeah. so there was a series of books about the Roman legions. Mm. Uh, I wrote a, um, uh, a Roman historical novel called The Inquest, which was a bestseller in Italy and Spain, of all wow. places. Um, and but the, the success of these books allowed me then to focus on other stories, mm. uh, particularly Australian stories, which hadn't been told. I tend to go down roads that other, other authors don't. Uh, to tell stories about people... Which is your unique selling proposition, oh, exactly, really? <laughs> exactly. So there is a plus and a minus to that. Number one, if you, if you hit the nail on the head, uh, the, the, the book can be a great success. Uh, but other times, you know, uh, you, uh, it, it misses the mark. So you, you, just, you can never tell. Um, uh, and so I've been able to... And then get into writing children's novels and, and so yes, on. Yes, tell us about the dog series. So Caesar the War Dog. Um, I had heard... All good fiction has a, a, a strong foundation, in fact. And I'd heard about a, a, an Australian sniffer dog uh, called Sabi who uh, went missing for a year in Afghanistan after uh, a battle. And uh, they never knew what had happened to her. And was then finally spotted by an American Special Forces soldier and thought, that looks like the dog that the Australians lost. He gets the dog back and the dog's reunited with his handler. So that's a wonderful a true story. story. But we never knew what happened in that 12 months. And so I imagined it. And uh, I spoke to a children's publisher at, at uh, Random House. He said, oh, oh, I like that idea. Uh, write me a chapter. So I wrote her a chapter and a, and a synopsis on it, where I saw it going. Uh, there were a couple of hints. We heard that a boy had brought the dog in and fed it for a little while. We then heard that a Taliban leader had come along and taken the dog, hoping to ransom it, for his father. The Australians had captured his father and had him in prison in Tarancot. So we had these couple of factual elements. So built around that framework, I, was, I changed the dog's name, I made him male, uh, I made him uh, still a Labrador, Caesar, I called him. Wonderful. Because obviously my... Of your Roman <laughs> exactly, background. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and uh, so the first book did very, very well. And then uh, so the fifth came out in the series in January this year. Uh, and um, I so often met 
at uh, book signings or in the street, people will, will turn around to me and say, oh, you're Stephen, um, you're my son's favourite author. And teachers have said to me, you have got my boys reading. Um, Isn't that wonderful? And, uh, and parents the same. Um, uh, it's, it's, it, it's the best compliment that an author can receive. Yes, because ultimately, apart from wanting to make a living, um, the most important thing is the reactions of your readers and, and, and actually reaching out and touching them, isn't it? I wrote a book called Standing Bear as a Person. It was my first American book, um, which was optioned by Hollywood for a while. And um, it was a story of a, a, a Native American chief who his tribe was driven from Nebraska down to uh, Oklahoma by the American government. He led his tribe back, uh, determined to, f- to reclaim their homeland, not by fighting, just uh, they were a very peaceful tribe. And his daughter, Prairie Flower, died on the trek and was buried in an unmarked grave. So uh, the book comes out and it does well and uh, very well reviewed. And then uh, a uh, Nebraska newspaper contacts me and says, we thought you'd be interested to know. There's a chap uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, read your book in 24 hours, was fascinated. And he and his friend went down to Kansas, have found the burial place of Prairie Flower, have used DNA technology to identify her. And because of your book, there's now a marker on her grave saying this is Prairie Flower's grave. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? You, when, you, when you've touched history yeah, like that, yeah. that's fantastic. Now, now, remind me the year your first book came out. 1986. And, um, I, and I thought, of course, oh, we're, on, we're on the way. Yes. Now we're going to be rich and famous. And, of course, it didn't happen. <laughs> no, no. I always tell emerging writers it won't happen with one book. No. 30 books you might just get there, you know. Um, now, obviously, 30 books in 30 years... <laughs> well, no, nearly 40. 40, 40, nearly 40. 40 next year, yeah. That's more than one a year. Mm-hmm. And um, your wife tells me you write three at a time. Is I'm this correct? W- I'm working on three at a time. Uh, so the, the, the Hero Maker is, is just out. Uh, my next American book is out in the US in January. It's called The Big Break, which was uh, the, uh, often working one book, I stumbled on another. And, uh, and I stumbled on the fact that there was a, an escape much bigger than The Great Escape by 250 wow. American uh, officers wow. uh, in... Uh, in yeah, January 1945, and they went east to the Russians, uh, who treated them almost as badly as the Germans, but they were supposedly wow. our allies. Yes. So when they got home, the American government made them sign a form saying they would never talk about it. But wow. fortunately for me, as I started digging into it, their children weren't prevented from talking, so I had enormous oh. help from the, the sons and daughters of these escapees. So th- th- there's a little bit of serendipity when you're a researcher, isn't there? Oh, it's, to me it's like a treasure hunt. Mm. Uh, someone said, uh, an interviewer the other day said, uh, oh, you're, you're really a, like a detective, aren't you? And I said, we well, are yeah, a cross between a detective and a treasure hunter. And yes. uh, sometimes you go down uh, you know, a dead end, but quite often yes. uh, it's uh, enormously rewarding. Tell us about your find at the National Library. You told the story last night. So uh, nine years ago, I was uh, um, researching a book about how, a true story, how Louis Pasteur, the famous French microbiologist, sent his nephew, Adrien Loire, to Australia to wipe out the Australian rabbit plague using microbiological means to win a $10 million equivalent today, a $10 million prize. Pasteur needed the money to open the Pasteur Institute in Paris. And so the nephew comes out and uh, had enormous adventures in Australia. And uh, I don't trust the, the internet 
per se for research. Uh, I'm on Wikipedia, so you know, that's not such a, a good advertisement for Wikipedia, is it? So uh, uh, and I didn't put myself there. Other people have to put you up. But um, I did find that a reference to a file, the Adrian Loire file, Adrian Loire being Pasteur's nephew, at the Academy of Science in Canberra. And uh, so I rang the librarian and I said, what's this Adrian Loire file? What's in it? And she said, you know, we haven't got a clue. It was a bequest to the Academy and we have yet to get to it. Um, but if you would like to come in and have a look, we'd set it aside for you. So we came up from Tasmania and uh, it, was, it took a week to come up and do a lot of research uh, here in Canberra. And uh, we go in on the Monday morning and the, uh, Roseanne, the librarian's off sick and uh, nobody else knows where she's put the file. So I have begged them, please, can you contact her? And uh, so, because we're only here for a week and we've come from overseas, we've come from Tasmania. <laughs> and um, uh, so they ring Roseanne and from her sickbed she tells them where to find the file. So we come back the next day and they produce two big A4 boxes. And uh, we open the boxes and they are full of the scrapbooks, the private scrapbooks of Adrien Loire, uh, Loire, Pasteur's nephew. And he was a hoarder. He kept every press clipping, every uh, invitation to Government House, every letter, uh, every railway ticket, everything. Like gold for like a researcher. Gold. <laughs> and you, you could trace his life every moment that he was in Australia. That's fantastic. And um, so uh, you, just, you just never know uh, what you're going to find. I think, uh, you know, having read this last book of yours, I haven't read the other 39 yet, but, <laughs> but I'll get to it. Um, I think the um, beauty of your writing, Stephen, is that you're a, an impeccable researcher. You, you dig down to the deepest details, but then your unique storytelling skills come into play and, and it's just beautiful prose. And I think that... Um, Anyone who would like to read historical novels and has been put off in the past by very dry books, of which, of which there are many, unfortunately, in that field, I think they would be delighted in reading your stories because it's the power of the storytelling that's so good. But um, I, I would like to ask you about um, future. I know you've got two more. You, this one came out this year. You've got another two coming out in the next few months. Um, down the track, do you think that uh, three books at a time is going to be something you can scale back on? I, I, I know that Louise wants you to. Yes, I promise Louise I'll, I'll scale back to one book a year. So the, the, the idea of writing three books at a time fascinates me. I read three books at a time. <laughs> How do you, because you, you, you get immersed in a book, is it one day one book, next day the other book, or what, what's your pattern of work there? Uh, it, 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 um, each book's at a different stage, so uh, right. one book has, has been delivered to the publisher and I'm, I'm working with the copy editor on, uh, on, right. on, on polishing the book. Um, I'm researching another one yes. and I'm writing another. So they're all, all right. at different stages. And oh, well, they're, they're different skills you use yeah, in there. That's so, right. so that, that and sounds like it's doable. It is doable. <laughs> and so, but I'm working away and having a great time and I'm totally immersed. I'm on the train, as I call it, uh, and the train is going at full speed. And um, then I'll get an email from New York saying, um, we need you to, to, to do this or to do that. With, you know, uh, uh, and you've got to go to all the writers' I, festivals in between, haven't uh, you? Oh, yeah, but writers' festivals are good fun. So, yes, yeah. lots of fun. Yeah, and you get plenty of warnings. So, so, you, know, you plan your schedule ahead. Yes. Um, look, that's wonderful, and I, I could talk to you forever on these things, uh, but I have Louise here in the studio as well, so uh, 
one final tip for emerging writers what what could you what would you say to yourself when you were starting out again what have you learned after all these years that you could have given yourself advice when you were starting uh, a good book is not written it's rewritten uh, I, I envy those authors who can write one draft and then just pass it in. There are authors like that. Uh, not many, I should but, imagine. But not many. And uh, a book I'm working on at the moment, I've never done so many drafts. Um, but you know, the book will dictate uh, how many drafts are required. But uh, So I will write a draft. I'll set that aside for probably a month as I'm going off. It might be I've gone off to research or do a writer's festival or whatever. Come back and pick up the draft. And quite often I'll say, what was I thinking? Or you, know, you spot your own mistakes. An author is, is the worst judge, worst judge of their own work and worst checker of their own work because you read what you think you, it should be on the page. Um, so I would urge, this is how I work anyway, uh, other authors to um, write a draft, set it aside, go off and do something else and then come back afresh and it's amazing uh, how that can benefit the work. And use professional editors and professional oh, cover yes, design if you're self-publishing. Yes, uh, because they're in the business, they're doing it all the time. And again, they, they are a step back you know, uh, from uh, the work. They're reading it afresh just like uh, your readers will, uh, except they have the, uh, the professional knowledge. And they also say, they'll be able to say to you, um, you said mentioned that on page 27. And the author is so absorbed the in textual their integrity comes, yeah, yeah, comes into play. That's right. Yeah. And, and also, um, they uh, with uh, with major publishers, they do fact check your work, uh, even novels. Yeah. These days, uh, I remember there was a Len Dayton novel. Uh, he um, he said uh, somebody used uh, fired eight shots from a six shot revolver. Well, he got thousands of letters from his readers. You cannot afford, even when you're writing fiction, uh, to to make mistakes. Yes, and it reflects on your publisher as well. So oh, yes, yes. <laughs> you want to please your publisher so that you get more, more uh, oh, jobs. And they hate it, even one typo getting through. And it, mm. it, happens. it happens. Oh, it happens all the time. Mm. It doesn't matter how many people edit. <laughs> Sometimes mm. they just creep in. Yeah. Look, I've really, really enjoyed interviewing you today. And um, your work is fascinating. I would say to people to Google Stephen Dando Collins and um, certainly The Hero Maker, I think is uh, is a book I can highly recommend and I'm sure that if you're um, intrigued by that you will go out and buy the rest of his books. Thank you very much Stephen. Thank you Suzanne, it's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au and if you are a reader or a writer then hop on over to our website and subscribe. Thank you.